Father, bless your word to us and open up the eyes of our understanding. We pray that you would do it with us here this evening, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 3, beginning now at verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of of Etura and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, where while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, stopping there in the middle of verse 2. I think it's fascinating how Luke begins this new section of his gospel. Obviously, it's not the beginning of the gospel. We're already at chapter 3, and Luke has already told us the story of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's told us about the miraculous birth of Jesus to Mary and his father by adoption, Joseph. Uh, He's told us about the shepherds coming. He's told us about these wonderful things surrounding the birth of Jesus. Uh, We we ended that last time we were in uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 2. But now he's going to talk about the adult ministry of Jesus. When we last left Jesus at the end of Luke chapter 2, He was about 12 years old coming back into Nazareth from that famous visit in the temple that he had. So some 28 years or so, excuse me, uh, 18 years pass in obscurity with him there in Nazareth until the time comes for his ministry to be made publicly known. But it doesn't begin directly with Jesus. It begins with the forerunner. But what Luke wants us to know by by opening right here in Luke chapter 3 is he wants every one of us to know that this happened in a real time, in a real place, with real people. This is not once upon a time. This is not, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, long time, whatever it was, beginning of Star Wars, whatever that is. This is real. There was a real Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. There was a real governor from Rome over Judea named Pontius Pilate. There were real sons of Herod who had divided up his dominion among themselves. And so not only does Luke take great care to anchor this into real life chronology, but Luke does something else that's of great interest to us. He tells us a little bit something of the tenor of the times. You see, he's telling us what kind of world Jesus began his ministry in. Tiberius was an emperor, but he was a Roman emperor who was known for his cruelty and his severity. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, was also renowned for his brutal massacres of the Jewish people in Judea and his insensitivity towards the Jews. And then the rulers from the family of Herod the Great, that's Herod, Philip, and Lysanias, they were known for their corruption, they were known for their cruelty. Do you see the picture that Luke is painting for us? Not just telling us that these things were rankered in real time, in real space, but actually he's wanting us to know that Jesus came and started his ministry in the midst of a corrupt, debauched world. And the historical reality of these rulers, it's well confirmed, but also just their their baseness. It was a rotten world that Jesus came to. And he came and did his ministry in the midst of it. Not only was it rotten on behalf of the Romans and the rulers, but if you take a look at the first half of Luke chapter, excuse me, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, the first half of verse 2, he tells us something about the Jewish leadership at that time where he says, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. 
These were the religious leaders of Judea in the period of Jesus' ministry. Caiaphas was actually the high priest, but his father-in-law, Annas, was actually the patriarch of the family and sort of the power behind the throne. And so with great reason, Luke sort of tells us that both of them held this office. Now, by the way, it may be of little interest to you, but I find it fascinating that in November of 1990, scholars discovered what they believed to be the family tomb of this very same Caiaphas. And on an ancient burial box called an ossuary, from that very era, there's an inscription reading this, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And the remains in that box are of a 60-year-old male who lived at the very time that these events are described. Now, since it's described as being Joseph, the son of Caiaphas, it's probably not Caiaphas himself, but his son, but it's discovered in that very same family tomb, and it's inscribed with the name of that man who was the high priest over Israel at that time. Continuing on now from the middle of verse 2, this is what happened in that time, in that place. Ready? Middle of verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Notice that in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and it came to him when he was in the wilderness. Now, John had lived in the desert since his youth. We found that way back in Luke chapter 1. But now, prompted by the word of God, John began to fulfill what was his destiny announced even before he was ever born, before he was ever conceived, the angel Gabriel told John the Baptist's father in that interview in the temple, so to speak, announcement in the temple, that John the Baptist would have a destiny and his destiny would be the great forerunner of the Messiah. And this is how he fulfilled it. Notice it here in verse three. It says that he would be preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now I want you to notice a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. What does that phrase mean? A remission of sins. It has the idea of not only forgiveness, but also of release, of liberty. In other words, people were bound by their sin. John gave them the opportunity to repent of their sin. And in their repentance, demonstrated by baptism, not only would they be cleansed of their sins, but they would be freed from their sins. What an amazing message that is, isn't it? Do do you know people who've experienced bondage from sin? Now, that's never the way Satan sells it to us, does it? He sells sin to you and to me as liberty. Be free. Be yourself. Express yourself. Have a great time. Do whatever you want to. On and on and on. But you and I know the truth. At least in our saner moments, we know the truth. Do we not? We know that sin actually brings bondage. And one of the reasons why God hates sin, I'm not going to say it's the only reason, but one of the reasons why God hates sin is because he wants to see people free. He doesn't want to see them in bondage. And so he preached this message of baptism, of repentance, for the remission of sins, of liberty and release. The Messiah is here, he was announcing. You must prepare yourself to receive what he would do. But make no mistake about it. 
John's message was a message of repentance. Now, some people think that repentance is mainly about feelings. And when the preacher tells you to repent of your sins, what he's actually telling you to do is to feel really bad about your sin. Okay, let's all do it together right now. Let's feel really bad about our sin. Okay, ready? Ah! No, you know, it just doesn't really work that way. Repentance isn't a word that really connects to feelings. Repentance is a word that connects to actions and to thinking. You change your mind and then you change your actions. That's what repentance is rooted in. Now, I could put it this way, and I'm exaggerating just a minute, just a little bit. I hope you give me the liberty to do this, but speaking sort of over the top in a way, I don't care how you feel about your sin. You can still change your mind about it and change your actions about it. You, you may say, I love my sin, but I know that I must change. Therefore, I choose to think differently about it, and I choose to act differently about it. Now, all the better if you hate your sin. All the better if you feel terrible about it. That's all the better, but it doesn't really matter one way or the other. He said, repent, and that's what God calls us to do. Repent is an action word, and John told his listeners to make a change of mind, not just to feel sorry about their sin, but to change their mind and to have a resulting change of action. I don't know how you feel when I say that word repent, but I'll tell you this. Repentance is a word of tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. Do you know what repentance means? It means that your life doesn't have to go on in the same way that it's gone. That you can change. That you can do a 180. Instead of facing south, you can turn around and face north. You can change direction. And ladies and gentlemen, that's hope. Because apart from God, the direction that every one of us is on is wrong, it's destructive, and it'll only end in ruin for us. So here is that great hopeful word, repentance. And John preached a, look at it there in verse 3, a baptism of repentance. Now there was nothing really strange in the ceremony of baptism. The Jewish people of this time, they practiced baptism. They practiced baptism, first of all, among some of their more fringy sects, such as the Essenes out in the desert. They practiced baptism. But they also practiced baptism within more mainstream Judaism at that time. But they practiced baptism for Gentile converts who came into Judaism. In other words, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, one of the uh, ceremonial things that you'd have to do, not the only thing, but one of the ceremonial things you have to do is to undergo a ritual of immersion, complete immersion, very much like John preached about with this idea of baptism. So do you see what John was doing when he asked regular Jewish people, if I could use this phrase, and I'll, you know what I mean by it, church-going Jewish people, if he would, what he asked them to do was to regard themselves as if they were Gentiles. You need to come to God all over again as if you were pagan, as if you were Gentile. And you want to know the crazy thing about it? Is that people responded. There was a huge response. When John gave this call, people responded. And we're going to take a look at that in just a few minutes. But one more thing before we move on to verse 4. Please notice something. That here in the text, you saw it there in verse 3. Luke makes a connection, just like the rest of the New Testament makes a connection between repentance and baptism. Now, look, I don't want to get off on it because to tell you the truth, it's a little bit of a hobby horse of mine in the last year or two. 
But I, I've become more and more persuaded, and if I could say a little more passionate in my mind, that the idea, even though I know that many Christians that are sweet brothers and sisters practice it, but the practice of infant baptism is unbiblical and wrong. If baptism is connected with repentance, that little baby can't repent. Then baptism should be reserved for those who at least have enough awareness of their sins to at least practice some kind of repentance. Even if it's the repentance just appropriate to a child at a fairly young age, fine. But it is no brief, it is no argument for the idea of infant baptism. All right, I need to be careful with that because it's a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. And I could talk a long time. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and every hill brought low. Every crooked place shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Notice this, verse 4 tells us that Luke connected John the Baptist with being the one prophesied by Isaiah. This is in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3, 4, and 5, that he's connecting him with that very one prophesied by Isaiah. Now, John himself was aware of this. It's very interesting. Sometimes people fulfill some prophetic calling unawares. John was aware. He knew that he was this forerunner of the Messiah, sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And that was his basic message. His basic message was this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Messiah is coming. He's coming to inaugurate the Messianic age. You need to get your life right with God because he's coming. It's a simple enough message. But just as in those days that a herald would go before a great king and he would say, the king is coming through your village. Let's fix up the road. Let's fill in the ditches. Let's level out the, top, the high spots. Make the road good. Prepare the way for the king. That's exactly what John, John was doing morally and spiritually in the life of Israel. Now understand this. When he says in verse 4, prepare the way of the Lord, he's telling you things can be set right. You can change. It's very much like that message that he had of that basic message of repentance. You can level the mountain. You can fill in the valley. You can straighten the crooked ways. Now, please notice something. The Jewish people in that first century time, in the days of Jesus, nobody had to tell the Jewish people that things weren't right. They knew it. They sensed it. There was a strong sense of messianic expectation. People sensed that that they needed something, that they needed someone. But here's the issue. If you would have asked, if you could have taken that microphone and interviewed a Jewish person on the street in those days and said, now what's the problem? Can you describe to me the problem here in this first century here in Judea? They would have said, oh, I know the problem. It's them. It's the Romans. The problem's them. We are victims of Roman oppression. That's our problem. And ladies and gentlemen, they were victims of Roman oppression. There's really no doubt about it. But isn't it interesting that Paul, excuse me, John doesn't say a word about that. What's John's attitude? John's attitude is, listen, you want to prepare the way of the Lord? Get yourself right with God. Set yourself right. This is a huge obstacle in the life of so many of us. We really think that the true problems in our life are brought to us by other people. You want to know what the real key to your life being happy and content and blessed by God is? 
It's not dependent on anybody else. It's dependent on that person you look at in the mirror every day. That person staring back at you in the mirror, that's the person who has the unbelief. That's the person that won't trust God. That's the person that won't um, forgive someone else. That's the person that holds on to things. That's the person on and on and on. And so John's great message wasn't, they are your problem. John's big message was, you are the problem. Get yourself right with God. And I have to add this too. Verse 6, notice the end of that quotation from Isaiah, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The way of the Messiah must be ready because he was coming to all mankind, not just a few but all mankind. Verse seven. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. This is great. John's preaching. Ready for this? Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's one of the coolest sermons you can ever imagine. Wouldn't you? You know, John the Baptist would not get a lot of guest speaking invitations around the churches. He'd open up his sermon. He'd come out on the stage. He'd look at you and he'd, he'd look crazy. John the Baptist was weird. Can we just admit it? He was a very strange man. If you were going to pick somebody to go represent your ministry and prepare the way for you, hey, Jesus is coming to our city next week. Here's an advanced guy to get up a little bit of interest, promotion in it, get the crowds ready for Jesus. And John the Baptist comes out on the stage. Looks weird, smells definitely weird. He has that fragrance of locusts and honey on his breath and all the rest of it. But even more strange than any of that was his message. He'd look, he'd come up on the platform, he'd look, he'd go, you're a bunch of snakes, that's what you are. And they says, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, the idea is something like this, oh yeah, sure, you, you, know, you, you, you come as if you want to repent, you're not sincere. It's as if he did everything to push people away. Ladies and gentlemen, there was something powerful about this. It wasn't as if there was something magical about the words in and of themselves that John preached, although they were inspired of the Lord. There was an anointing. There was a calling. There was a blessing on that man because he was God's chosen servant to be the advanced man, the one to prepare the way of the Lord. Let's begin again, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, I can't get past that one verse. (laughs) Did you see what it said there in verse 7? To those who came out to be baptized. Okay, this is the image. It's a flesh. This is what you say to the people who come forward to the altar call. Who wants to get right with the Lord? I do, I do. They come forward to go, you brood of vipers, who warned you? Well, you warned me to flee from the wrath to come, John. Isn't that strange that he would be like that? Listen, it's, isn't it strange, though, that John being so severe, so, so tough with his words, there's something in that that resonates with us because in some way or another, and I'm not saying on every day of the week, I'm not saying on every day of our life, but certainly at some time or another, we need that. We need somebody who's not going to pussyfoot around with us, but who sort of grab us by the lapels and tell us the truth, even if they've got to scream it in our face. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, 
bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John warned them against taking refuge in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Which, by the way, there were people in first century Judaism that specifically taught that. That if you were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was impossible for you to go to hell no matter how badly you lived. You didn't have to believe in God. You didn't have to repent. You didn't have to. All you had to do was be descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were people actually taught that. And John totally rebukes that. He blows it out of the water. No, never, he says. Do not trust just in your lineage. Don't you say, well, daddy was a Christian and grandpa was a Christian and great grandpa was a preacher. John would say, so what? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You have to get right with God. Matter of fact, he says it very plainly here and powerfully in verse 8 where he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. This was not unreasonable. John wasn't just asking for a show of hands to say, who wants to repent? He says, I want to see it in your life. I want to see that you bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, I, I know that when somebody gives their life to Jesus and makes a profession of faith, Faith, we're very quick to comfort them and to say, yes, you're walking with the Lord. Isn't it wonderful? We're quick to do that, and that's good. But there is an entirely reasonable aspect for us just to say, well, let's wait and see if they really are a believer. Let's wait and see if they really have repented. And we don't say that in a doubting sense as if we're daring them. Oh, I know you're not a believer. No. It's just if you are, it's going to show in the life. If you are you will bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's all John was saying. If you've really repented, it's going to show in your life. Verse 10. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him saying, what shall we do? And he said to him, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. I want you to notice John gave very ordinary instructions for what they had to do. All right. So we want to be right with God. What do we do? Don't steal. Be nice to each other. Share with your neighbors. Isn't that the kind of things we tell our kindergartners? But how much we need to hear it. John wanted to remind each and every one of us that living the way that God wants us to live, even though it's impossible for anybody to do it with even a shadow of perfection, but in essence, what God requires of us is not complicated. Be nice to other people. Love them. Care for them. Put me first, put others second, and put yourself third. I mean, this is just the basic things that John was telling them. And so when the tax collectors came, what should we do? Well, don't cheat anybody. You don't have to quit your job as a tax collector. Just don't cheat people. And when the soldiers came to me, you don't have to quit your job as a soldier. Just do it well. Do it in a way that honors God. Which, by the way, and this is something we could go off on for a long time, but let me just say it very directly. Isn't it wonderful that John, speaking really inspired by the Lord, speaks to us about the nobility of every profession. 
Now, I suppose there's some professions out there that, you know, if you're involved in, you know, gang violence and racketeering, you know, I'm not going to tell you, okay, now just do it unto the Lord. (laughs) So apart from those aberrational career tracks that some people might be on, I'll just say this plainly. You, You can glorify God mightily in the career that you have. You know, if you, if you work in finance, if you work in education, if you work in mechanics, if you on sales, on and on and on. Do you realize how much you glorify God just by doing your job well and honestly and in a way that just brings him glory? It, it, it's a very disturbing thing when people think that in order to please God, everybody should quit their profession and, you know, enter into full-time ministry. No. Only do that if specifically God has called you to do that. And whatever particular your calling or vocation is, you can glorify God in the midst of it. Now, verse 15. Now, as people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing hand fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. So the people wanted to know, are you the Christ or not? Are you the Messiah? And don't you love John's answer? No way. I am not the Messiah. Rather, I'm looking forward to one even mightier than I, greater than I. Matter of fact, he's so much greater than I, I'm not even worthy to unlatch the, the, uh, the strap on his sandal. Now, this was a well-known figure of speech for menial, debasing work. And it's as if you could say, if you could, I, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but if you could just bring in the modern age, it would be something like saying, I'm not worthy to clean his toilet. I'm not worthy to do this menial labor that some people might find too low for a person to do. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's how much greater than I, uh, Jesus is, John explained. By the way, I, I love this about John. Just think about this for a moment. John was both strict and humble. And you know what? That's a rare combination, isn't it? But, but actually, it's good. If you can combine those two things, that's a good thing. But he goes on to say, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John said, I'm baptizing you with water, but the Messiah is coming with a different work to do, a greater work. Not only baptizing you in water, which Jesus also did, but to baptize people with fire. And then he adds on to it, verse 17. His winnowing hand is in his fan. No, excuse me, his winnowing hand. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor do you know what a winnowing fan was for it was used to separate the wheat from the chaff and that's what he's saying jesus would do jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff his work is even greater than mine verse 19 but herod the tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning herodias his brother philip's wife And for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Well, here at least, you know, for a moment, we get this very dark note about what eventually happened to John. 
This man, Herod, the son of Herod the Great, was rebuked by John concerning Herodias. Now, the relationship between Herod and his wife Herodias was both complicated and sinful. Herod was the uncle of Herodias, and he seduced her from his half-brother. Therefore, when he married Herodias, Herod at the same time married a woman who was his niece and his sister-in-law. Sinful on both counts. And so what did John do? John spoke out against it. He was horrified by this. He spoke out against it. Therefore, he was shut up in prison about it. By the way, later on, it's this same woman, Herodias, who was responsible for the command to put John to death. Now, continuing on, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Friends, that's a gold mine right there. Jesus also was baptized. Now, what was John's baptism all about? It was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Do you remember that? What did Jesus have to repent of? Nothing. He was the spotless son of God. He had no sin to repent of, no bondage to be remitted or to be released from then why did Jesus receive baptism? It's very simple. He wanted to identify himself with sinful man, just as he had done his whole life. Jesus wanted to be able to look at you and I in the eye and to say, I have walked the same ground. I know. I am the God-man. I am fully man and fully God. I've never been stained by sin, but I've done everything I possibly could to identify with you in your sinful condition. Therefore, I will receive this act of baptism. But wouldn't you know it, and as you would fully expect, Jesus' reception of baptism was much different than anybody else's. Look at it here in the middle of verse 21. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now there's two really remarkable things about this. First of all, there's the descent of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? And I wish I could tell you I know exactly what it means, but I don't know. I do know this, that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in a remarkable way. Now I must stress this. It's not as if Jesus became the Christ at that moment. That is a wrong, that is a, a, I'll I'll say it, that's a heretical teaching that goes around from time to time. That Jesus was just an ordinary guy until the Spirit came on him at his baptism. No, 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 no. No, it's not the idea that Jesus became the Christ or became the Messiah. He was the Messiah before this. But yet God wanted to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon this man, Jesus, in a unique way that the Holy Spirit came upon him. What does the text say there? It says very plainly, it says, descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. What does that mean? I don't know. Does it mean that the Holy Spirit was a dove that came down upon him? No, because it says like a dove. What does that mean? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. In some way, it was visible to the eye. 
Just like on the day of Pentecost that would happen later, that the disciples had these tongues, unique tongues of fire up over their head as some sort of physical, visible manifestation, that they were being filled with the Spirit in a special and unique way. In the same way, God wanted everybody to know publicly, my Spirit is upon this man in a special way. Now, I don't know exactly what it looked like or any of that, but I know that it was visible and that it was powerful and it was unique, but but even made perhaps even more remarkable than the Holy Spirit coming on him in some physical, visible presence was this, the voice that said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Now, do you see another reason for the importance of Jesus' baptism? It wasn't just so that he could be baptized as identification, but it was also as if God could shout it out to everybody there. And by the way, there were vast multitudes there at John's baptism and watching this. So that everybody could see it, that this man was the unique son of God. Do you think that God said that at anyone else's baptism? No. It's almost if God would have said anything at those, sinner, sinner, sinner. Sinner, but now when Jesus bad, what is it? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Marking Jesus out as being totally unique and having a unique relationship to God the Father more than anybody else. Continuing on now, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. We'll pick up the start of that ministry, so to speak, very next week when we get into Luke chapter 4. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Amos, etc., 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 just for the sake of time. We'll come now to the end part of this where he says, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, according to ancient custom, genealogies were almost always traced through the father and not the mother. That's why Luke uses the traditional pattern in not taking the genealogy through the mother, who was Mary, but through the father, at least in the way that he phrases it. But you see, Luke differs in the account of the genealogy from Matthew at the point of David onward, but they both end their genealogies with Joseph. The best explanation of this seems to be That biologically speaking, Luke followed Mary's line. And biologically speaking, uh, Matthew followed Jesus' legal line through Joseph. And again, his actual lineage is recorded by Luke through Mary. But Matthew focuses on his legal lineage. And yet, nevertheless, Luke begins with Joseph because that's proper form. And interestingly, He includes no women in his genealogy as Matthew does in a few cases. But he says the son of, the son of, the son of, completing the picture that Jesus goes all the way back to humanity, that he was one of us. You may think that these genealogies are superfluous, that they're just, well, sort of a big waste of time in the scriptures. Let me tell you that they're not superfluous at all. I heard a story of a Bible translator. He might have been working very much with the kind of people that Chad is working with in some primitive group somewhere out there in the midst of some forest or jungle or something. 
And he was going to translate the New Testament for them. So he decided to start with the Gospel of Luke. And he's making his way through the Gospel of Luke. And he says, well, the genealogy, I can leave that for the end. You know, I, I need to get through this thing. And so he just kind of sets the genealogy aside. And he translates the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And when he's done with it all, he, he says, okay, well, at the very end, here's the genealogy. And when he shared with them the genealogy, the, all the, the villagers there in that tribe, they were absolutely had their minds blown. They said, What? The genealogy, they said, you mean you're talking about a real person? They didn't know or believe that it was a real person that he was talking about until they quoted the genealogy. And that's the strength of this. It shows up that. Look, let me conclude with this. Think back to Jesus' baptism. Can you picture it in your mind? There's Jesus being baptized by John. And actually, the other gospels shed some beautiful light on it, how there was a little conversation with them before they were baptized, correct? You know, no, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Jesus says, no, but for propriety's sake, just so it be fulfilled, let it be so. John baptized him. He comes up out of the water. And what are those words that he hears? He hears the words. First First of all, the Holy Spirit descends on him in a special way. And secondly, the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Did it click with anybody here tonight? You said, man, I wish the Lord would say that about me. I wish I could have that. Would you realize that in Jesus you can? In Jesus, he will pour out his spirit upon you if you ask him to. In Jesus, he'll do that. Now, I'm not going to promise any bodily manifestation of it, although who knows what God may want to do, but I'm just saying that in Jesus, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in Jesus, you have a place as an adopted son or daughter before him. Don't you realize that Jesus would say to you, because you're in him, God would look at you and say, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. Now, not in the same sense, Jesus has his unique sonship, and ours is of adoption, not but generation as Jesus, but ours is of adoption, it's of a different sort, but it's still in the family. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. So we can have the outpouring of the spirit. We can have that family relationship. And then finally, in whom I am well pleased. Did you know God can be well pleased with you tonight? Why? Because you're so wonderful. Why don't you think about that one just for a couple minutes? God can be well pleased with you. If you are found in Christ, in Jesus, maybe that's what you need to do. Now, you need to say, Lord, Jesus identified with me at that baptism. Now, I want to identify with him and find my place in him. Lord, I come to you in Jesus, not in myself, but in Jesus. And in Jesus, I can ask for the Holy Spirit and receive it. In Jesus, I can be that beloved daughter or son. And in Jesus, I can be that well-pleasing one to God. Won't you receive that from him tonight? He has it for you. Father, just do that. Do that in our life. Do it in our heart. It's more, Lord, than we could ever gain for ourselves, but it's what you can give us in Jesus Christ, so we want to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.